Welcome, welcome, welcome to Chromatic Distortion with Corey Caesar. What's going on all you beautiful bastards and all you beautiful people that have a father in your life? Welcome back to Chromatic Distortion. I'm your host, as always, Corey Caesar. I hope you have been enjoying the last few weeks. The weather has been changing. The sun's been shining. It's been warm. Uh, the winter whim, uh, wind has calmed the fuck down finally. Um, and real quick, I guess, on that wind note, uh, you may have heard a little story. Uh, about some windmill uh, turbine noise causing some cancer. You can rest assured, that's bullshit. Uh, it, it will not cause cancer, and that's probably the stupidest thing Trump has ever said. Um, now we can talk about the efficiency of wind energy on a different episode, but yanking cancer. Uh, you heard that first here on Chromatic Distortion. You can uh, chalk that one up as uh, not going to happen. Um, anyway, though, I really have been enjoying this warm up, um, with the warm weather though, always comes the start of spider season and I have claimed my first kill. Um, now if you listen to one of the OG episodes, I told you I've been letting the little, uh, the little spiders in the corner of my home live in peace. So they just get to chill. They eat like the roly poly bugs and shit that I, that I get for some reason a lot. Um, so we're keeping that foreign policy the same this year. Um, they're gonna they're gonna live in peace, and we are still killing the bigger spiders though, that are more free roaming. That that policy is also staying in place. Um, listen, you live the good life. Nips going rent free all winter. It's time to go, my dude. Go get that vitamin D. Uh, you crawl across the floor. It's over. I trained the cat. Dude, my cat, my cat hunts fucking wildebeest and zebras in her sleep, guy. Now, I handle the big spiders a little differently in my plant, though, at work. Um, so I'm out in the hydrogen plant. I basically run the hydrogen plant, and my plant is outside. I have basically like a three-sided structure, similar to a carport, like if you picture a carport. Um, and there's like just basically open field all in front, all the way out to Klein Avenue. Um, if you know the area. So my little area out there is prime spider location. And these guys come out at night and they build their web. And they suck that insect juice. And then usually once I turn the light on or, or blow some of that CO2 breath on them, let them know that the, you know, uh, the, the big predators in the area, they go inside to their hiding, uh, their little hiding area for the day. Um, and then I let them live in peace. I don't kill them. I like, they go away and they hide. They fine, but if they drop down on me or come in my area during the day, you know, I impose my superior species life on them, murdered. And then I, I take a step further. I take, I, I, 
I throw their dead bodies out, out the front, bro, um, as like a little warning, like a little shot fired to their homies. And I do the same with the wasps. I don't kill bees, but I do. I murder a wasp. A wasp come in my area. It can fly around. It's cool. Same policy. You fly around my area. You're all good. You start bothering me. Start flying around my face. It's over. Murder, and you're thrown out in the graveyard. It's like, listen, we can cohabitate this area, but you're gonna respect my boundaries or end up in the graveyard. That's the deal. So speaking of nature and murder. I guess that's a, a a creepy way to transition into today's topic. Um, we're going to be talking some top secret weapons designed uh, in World War II. This is the start of the weapon systems that we pretty much transformed modern warfare. And this was the race for what we now call the smart bomb. So we have to understand that since the beginning of man uh, dropping bombs on people, you know, on the sky, uh, you know, just basically out of the sky on other humans, you know, the, the, these bombs, the top brass has been searching for ways to make these bombs more accurate, to find a weapon that could strike targets with deadly precision and from safer distance away. The need for this was never greater than during World War II and in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. Now, Pearl Harbor takes place on December 7th, 1941, which, if you didn't know for some reason, um, was the Japanese attacking our naval base in Hawaii, killing about 2,500 American soldiers. And we immediately enter the war the next day. The reality is World War II, though, had already been going on for two years prior to, World, uh, to Pearl Harbor. It started on September 1st, 1939, after Germany invaded Poland. Now, two days later, France and Britain officially declared war on Germany. So, for the most part, America was staying neutral. Now, we were we were supplying. We, this is a whole different topic. We weren't technically neutral, but for the most part, we were staying neutral in terms of um, soldiers and dropping bombs and things of that nature. Um, but this, basically, Pearl Harbor, is what brought us into this conflict, which was, for the most part, taking place in Europe and Asia. Um, so America now is desperate, right? We're desperate to strike back. Um, I mean, we're America. We're still the defending World War champions at this point. Ain't no one, ain't no one knocked us off that pedestal yet, guy. So like the military does, it goes around and it gathers the top military minds as well as some of the most creative civilian inventors from all over the country to do just that, just what we talked about, make these make these bombs. Like, uh, uh, we want to have revenge, you know, on Japan. So the mission is basic. It's to hit Japanese targets with devastating casualties and fearsome accuracy. So you guys got to remember, war back then was very up close and personal. So striking fear in your enemy was a big upper hand. Scared soldiers don't fight well. Um, so one dude thinks he has the answer to this question. Now, this guy isn't a scientist or a bomb maker. He's not even in the military. He's a Pennsylvania dentist. But he is a keen inventor. 
and they call this dude Doc uh, uh, Lytle Adams. And you know if your nickname is Doc, guys, come on. You're on some future, uh, futuristic shit. Just ask Marty, right? So this dude spots a major weakness in the Japanese building structure, right? So most of Japan right now, these buildings and homes, they're made mostly of flammable wood, bamboo, paper. And this guy, Doc Adams, he knows how to put a guided uh, incendiary bomb inside each and every one of these buildings, he claims. His plan is to literally burn Japanese cities and industries to the ground. Ash. So, the first thing he does is he heads to L.A. County Museum of Natural History. There he meets a 17-year-old high schooler and part-time worker named Jack Coffer. So, in an age before computer-guided weapon systems, right, how was Adams planning on achieving this goal? Well, it was with bats. He, uh, he wants to strap bombs to one million of them and then drop them over Japan. So the reason Doc went to this L.A. museum was because the mentor of 17-year-old Jack Coffer was actually a leading bat authority um, in, our, in our country. And his name was Jack Von Bloker. And Bloker is his real last name. Well, Von Bloker, a, that's a real name, guys. Um, so Doc, he runs this idea by, uh, by these, two, these two gentlemen. And Von Bloker says, you know, he thinks about it for a second. He's like, you know what, that, that, that actually can work. You know, uh, that, that's basically the biology of it. You know, it makes sense. So the reality is this plan isn't that nutty as it sounds. There's legit science to support this theory. So bats are strong. They actually carry their young as they fly, uh, if you didn't know. There are millions of them. So There's so many bats. So while individually they might not be able to carry a large device together, because I like to believe that unity is always stronger than division, um, together they could be absolutely devastating. And if you didn't know, and I really didn't know this, bats hibernate. So if kept in controlled conditions, they would be easy to transport and handle. But most importantly, as we all know, bats don't come out in the daylight, right? They're little Vlads all coughed up uh, during the day. So during the peak sun vitamin D hours, they like to seek out dark, small crevices to chill in. You know, that's perfect for getting little incendiary bombs into cracks and under the roofs of all these Japanese buildings. So by chance, you know, this Doc Adams guy, he happens to be friends with this this lady. And her name just happens to be Eleanor Roosevelt. You know, you may have heard of her. She's wife and first later, uh, lady to one Frank, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So homie takes his bad idea straight to the White House. He's like, fuck the, uh, fuck the chain, dude. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go right to the White House. Now get this. FDR actually writes a letter to his aide, Colonel William J. Donovan, 
on February 9th, 1942, saying, quote, This man is not a nut. It sounds like a perfectly wild idea, but is worth you looking into. You might reply for me to Mr. Adams' letter, which was actually attached to this memo, signed FDR. So with President Roosevelt's backing, this top-secret operation, codenamed The Adams Plan, you know, super original and creative, right? Um, gets the green light to proceed. So Adams sets out recruiting his team. And right off the bat, he recruits Jack Von Bloker and 17-year-old Jack Coffer from the museum. And these guys are inducted into the Army Air Force on the spot. Now, this unit consisted of about eight people. Von Bloker was considered the Batman. Coffer was the Bat Boy or Bitch Ass Robin. Um, and they instantly head out for the Bat Caves of Texas and New Mexico. And it's there that they meet another 17-year-old Bat enthusiast named Denny Constantine. Now, they explain to Denny Constantine that they are on a secret government project, but couldn't give any real details. So Denny explains this as, like, you know, this is super surreal. Here he is. He's someone who, um, up until this point of life, you know, a 17-year-old kid, he was being considered a, just a crazy kid, you know, playing around with bats. Who's a 17-year-old kid going in all these caves playing with bats? It's a little strange, you know, definitely for the 40s. Now, uh, and, and now all of a sudden, you know, so suddenly his government needs him. Now, remember, we were just bombed by Japan a few months before. This is all, this is all happening really quick. Um, we were just bombed by Japan a few months before, and we are actively engaging in World War II now. And who's, you know, who was this little 17-year-old kid to say no to his government? So he joins the team, and they are all given a top-secret clearance paper. Right, which basically said that no one was allowed to ask them any questions, and anything they said or did was to just be accepted. Think about that for a second. Two 17-year-old kids, a dentist, and a museum bat guy, with that kind of pull. They had they were like generals basically. Um, so this team, they start searching for the right species of bat to carry out this plan. And they need to gather some. They need to know exactly what these, you know, bats are capable. Um, and also figure out, you know, what's the best way we're going to handle a million bats. That's a lot of bats. Um, so the bat they decide on that Denny leads them to is the Mexican or Brazilian free-tailed bat. Because it, uh, and it's named this because it has a free-moving tail that extends southward between its legs like that cacosaurus on humans right so each night uh millions of these free-tailed bats leave the caves of texas and new mexico in search for uh for food you know um and and they're actually pretty easy to catch but they don't really have a uh a, a way to handle them yet so they need to find a way to induce these bats to go into hi uh to hibernate once they catch them so they quickly learned that they could basically just put a bat in a refrigerator and it would go to, into a state of hibernation. So the cold made it sleep. Uh, then they learned that 
they could quickly reverse the situation by just putting them into a pre-warmed oven. So they could change states very quickly, very rapidly. It wasn't like a slow move. They didn't need time to, like, you know, pop up. They would actually quickly pop up, you know, and be ready to move. Um, so next they had to discover um, how much can these bats actually carry in flight. So these bats were only about uh, half of an ounce. And tests showed that these bats could carry about twice their own body weight. So they could carry about an ounce. But this is 1942, guys. And the smallest uh, incendiary device at this time weighed two pounds. You know, just 30 times heavier than what that bat can carry. Excuse me. You know, that's a, that's a major problem, right? That's not even close in reality. So to solve this dilemma... Um, one of America's top scientists, renowned harvest, uh, Harvard chemist, Louis Pfizer, this dude's brought on board. And his task is to design an incendiary device that's light enough to be attached to the bat's bellies. But it also still needs to be destructive enough, obviously, to burn down cities because that's the goal, remember? You want to burn this these cities to the ground. Um, so his plan is to use his recent invention. This little thing called napalm, which you may have heard of, was used extensively later on in a different war. But basically, napalm is gasoline that is gelled. Now, it kind of looks like gel toothpaste. Like, you know, if you ever buy the gel toothpaste instead of the white, you know, like the white toothpaste. Um, it's basically just a semi-solid semi form of gas, right? Um, but that little, that little bit of napalm packed a serious punch. And it was actually pretty impressive what, what it could do being so small. It, like, shot out. It had, like, this weird property that when it would burn, it almost, like, spit, like, spit fire flames. So it would, it would make the, these little fires, they would spread very quickly, and it would... Um, it didn't take long t a long time for it to have to sit on a piece of wood to actually catch that wood on fire. If you ever built a wood in, uh, a fire in the woods, you you realize that a, a a thicker piece of wood doesn't just catch on fire. You got to you got to get it hot first before it actually catches on fire, right? Um, napalm would achieve that very quickly. Um, so as these tiny little devices were being perfected, um, they were almost to the point of official testing when Pfizer has a pretty big disaster in the lab. Now, this disaster threatens to shelve this entire project. So the Army Air Force, who was running this project, remember, sent some photographers down, right? Because, I mean, Pixar didn't happen kind of thing, I guess. Um, but they wanted to see what happened Uh when one of these real bombs went off, right? So Pfizer, who had just completed this small device, complete with these little timer fuses, is anxious as fuck to show these off, you know, get that chest pump for developing something that would, you know, unmercifully just kill men, women, and children, no big deal. While um, Pfizer knows his bombs, though, He's not a bat expert. He doesn't really know dick about bats. That's the that's the bat dudes, right? That's the two 17-year-old kids and, and Von Bloker. So this dude, Pfizer, takes out six bats. 
and clips on these little napalm bombs. And just like we talked about before, these bats started to warm up and came out of hibernation quite quickly and flew away. Skeet, skeet. And within 20 minutes, they had six fires going on this army base, this army air base. Now these fires, they rip through and they destroy barracks and a control tower. Now the army air force immediately loses interest in the pro in this project. They're like, it's over for us. We just had a pretty big, you know, a pretty big incident. We're done. But it's not over yet because in reality, to any rational thinker, what did, what just happened? I mean, they literally just proved it worked. Six bats, six. They're talking about dropping a million of these fuckers. Six bats did this to a military base. And it just so happened a Marine Corps general, you know, those guys got some pull, um, was there at the time as an observer on this base. And just like another rational thinker, he was a rational thinker, and it proved that it worked to him also. You know, what would they say? Another man's uh, trash is another man's treasure type of thing. So convinced, obviously, of the bat bomb's potential, the Marine Corps now picks up um, where the Army uh, Air Force left off and launches what they called Project X-Ray. And the team starts putting together the finishing touches, right? So Doc Adams has because he's the inventor he's not the bad guy but what he, what he is he's building this compartment so by this point he's finished his design of a bombshell or casing if you will right to house these small bats um and it's basically just a five foot container and this little five foot container is going to hold over a thousand bats now these bats will be hibernating in separate compartments on 26 different trays. So picture these trays like an Eggo, like a little circular Eggo. So it's circular and each little square cutout, like the little hole, holds a bat, right? Now I like to, just for, just, you know, so you guys know, I like to fill my, uh, each square of my Eggo with butter because I live life cholesterol dangerous. But these squares um, were filled with bats. Now the plan is to drop this container from high altitude. And at 4,000 feet, a barometric device would deploy a parachute and then um, the outer ca uh, casing basically would just fall away, right? Um, thus exposing these trays that now actually fall open like an accordion, right? And they are all attached with thin cord. So picture like holding up a slinky, I guess if you will, um, up with it compressed and then, you know, just holding it from the top and letting the bottom drop out, right, and expand and separate towards the floor, right? So that's basically what this thing's doing. Now, this frees the bat from their compartments, you know, giving them an exit in theory because now they can fly up. Now, each one acts like a little separate launching platform, allowing the bats to warm and wake up. As they dip out, uh, a little hair-thin wire acts, you know, similar to a grenade pin, and arms the little incendiaries, which is set for Domino's delivery, 30 minutes. In December 1943, 
at Dugway Proving Ground in Utah, this five foot uh, bat bomb is ready for final testing and actual sign off for use, right? And the uh, American military, because we're the American military, they spare no expense. They build a replica Japanese town, which in my mind, I don't know, it's to me it's creepy. I hate seeing these videos because, you know, this is all video documented. I hate seeing this shit because it's like in my mind, why are you building like a little Japanese town like that? Because that just shows the intent of you wanting to kill a bunch of civilians. Right? Because that's what's living in these little towns, not military, that's civilian. Like, I don't know, it's just weird for me. But that's a different uh, That's a different episode altogether. Um, but they do bring in, they bring in a bunch of statisticians, you know, high-ranking observers. Let's see where we, let's see this bomb to fucking see how we're going to burn Japan to the ground, right? Um, so it's taken up in a bomber and released. And guess what? It works perfectly. The bats disperse, and they hide in the ass cracks of these buildings and structures. And just like they thought it would, it sets them on fire. Just as expected. So now they quickly get to work because you always, that's what the statisticians were for. You got to compare, right? So they get to work comparing the bat bomb to other conventional uh, incendiaries of the time. Now, while there had been laughs and skepticism before, because this was kind of a joke to a lot of people, um, that was no longer the case. What they found is super impressive. So, in conventional bombing missions at the time, the aircraft could carry enough normal payload to start about 400 fires. 400 fires. But in those 400 fires, there was a lot of wastage, right? So it's not an efficient. Uh, it's not an efficient method. Many of these bombs missed their mark completely and caused no damage at all. The bat bomb, however, um, when equipped to a single plane, could start a staggering 4,800 separate fires. 12 times as many for those not mathematically inclined. That's a, that's a significant jump, right? And every single one started... You know, every single one of these fires started in a flammable and inaccessible place in the little ass cracks of buildings. Hard to get out. It's fucking ingenious, to be honest. So Project uh, X-Ray, a.k.a. the Bat Bomb, because it works, gets official approval. Legit official approval from the U.S. government. And the plan is actually, they put in a plan already, is to drop it over Japan in September the following year, which would be September of 1944, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so we will pick up the specific conclusion of this project at the end of this episode because it actually ties in quite nicely, I think. Um, so while this project was being developed, the bat bomb was being developed for a specific attack on Japan, right, as a retaliation to Pearl Harbor, a war was actually being fought on land and water, right? Um, and other quote-unquote smart bombs were being developed to help on those fronts. 
and bats aren't the only animals being tasked with guiding bombs to their destinations. Um, and these bombs, specifically though, won't be targeting buildings. They will be aimed at ships. So think about it. Ships are really difficult to bomb at this time, um, especially from the air. Submarines were having some success, but it's still hard to, you know, you got to track people down with subs. Um, from the air, because the ships are small and they're moving targets, right, when you're, when you're looking at them from the air. Um, and it takes like 25 to 30 seconds in reality for a bomb to drop from a plane and then hit its hit the ground. There's the, there's a 30 second gap, um, and it's not guided, so it's just a paperweight. It's traveling the same speed as the plane when you drop it, so it has forward velocity already um, that you can no longer control. And on top of that, um, by the by the time that bomb hits that ground. That 30 seconds later, that ship's already moved, right? So the only option at the time for any kind of success is just to fly real low. But that comes with elevated risk. You have, you know, you have a far better chance of being shot down when you're low. Um, and like we just said, you know, still the chances of success are very small. So logically... A bomb is needed that can track a ship or moving object all the way to impact. And one dude thinks he's got the answer to this dilemma. And this dude's name is B.F. Skinner. And this guy is no ordinary scientist. He's actually a, a an animal behavioral, uh, behaviorist, right? And... He thinks the search for a smart bomb guiding system is actually God's flying rat, the pigeon. It's not a joke, guys. But all jokes aside, pigeons have exceptional eyesight, right? Their brains process visual information much faster than human brains. And most importantly, they can be trained. Right, we we all know they have been using um, pigeons as as carrier, you know, message message carriers forever, and they were actually still being used um, in that fashion at this time in World War II. So, what Skinner was known for at the time was his development and discovery of operant conditioning. Excuse me. Now. The theory of operant conditioning is um, the basis of most forms of animal training, right? It shows how an animal's behavior can be changed by rewarding it. So what Skinner's idea was is to take a pigeon and shape and form its behavior to perform different types of actions, right? It's pretty simple. Um, and simply by pairing those actions with some kind of reinforcement or reward like food, he believes that it, it could work. So he uses this technique and starts teaching these pigeons to do more and more complex tasks. He teaches them how to play ping pong with each other. He even gets them to distinguish between different shapes made by lights, pecking only the lights 
that resulted in a reward. That's pretty, that's kind of crazy if you think about it. So like they're seeing these different images of lights. It's like different. It was different. There's there's video of this too. There's like different, like little squares of lights. So it'd be like a thing, think of a dice almost and it'd pop up a number and only the ones that didn't knew the, the correct pitcher basically that gave it food, it would peck at and wouldn't peck at the ones that didn't give it no food. That's pretty, that's actually pretty, I'm impressed. It's a bird. Um, so he figured that these light patterns, though, these, these, these little light pictures, um, could be anything he wanted it to be. Right. Uh, even, I don't know, uh, uh, an image of a battleship maybe. So he believes he can train a pigeon and design a bomb that's allows these packs, these individual packs to actually steer this bomb. Now I know you guys are like, what the fuck is our government thinking right now? But this is World War II. Now the limits of innovation were pushed in every conceivable way to gain that advantage over their enemy. This is this is a lot of shit going on in this time in America. Um so Skinner gets twenty five thousand dollars from the US government to turn a pigeon into a guided missile, right? Um, so for this bomb to do its trick, it needs to be able to track a moving target, right? So Skinner instantly begins training his birds to follow just a simple dot going left to right, left and right, and pecking that dot, rewarding them just like before when they get it right, when they hit the dot, and he, he like fastened like a little a little metal um like a, like a little metal contact to their nose so it knew every time it hit, right? Um, so he, like I said, he begins training these birds to follow a simple dot. Um, and, and it worked. And even more crucially, he's able to show that once trained, um, this pigeon could track that moving object even when subjected to the noise of explosions and rapid descents. So they put these pigeons under a bunch of different degrees of g-force and atmospheric pressures and that pigeon would not lose consciousness and it would still peck away right so that's pretty that, that's important also right because it's going to be being dropped from a from an airplane it, you know has to perform under pressure so next homie developed a special nose cone for this bomb so the plan is to load three of these birds into their own little pressurized chambers. Now he wrapped them in just a, a basic sock, like a little white, like a little white sock, which would help them feel secure. But it also kept them from wandering off while giving them free motion of their head, so it could still peck on the screen. So it couldn't just flap its wings, you know, get disinterested, walk away. It was locked in place, but in a in a, in a little sock, had a full, full move of its head. Um. So what he did was, it's pretty smart too, he took lenses and mirrors and then he, he would project an image on this translucent screen. So you could project what was out in front of him into like this um, light image basically on this little screen in front of this bird. So with the nose cone obviously facing a ship, that ship is now projected on this screen. So the bird starts pecking it. As it does so, right? So as it does so, four valves, or like these little metal contacts. Remember, I told you that bird has one. Now there's four little metal contacts onto this little this little circular disc that he's packing. They translate these pecks 
into an electrical signal. So think Morse code in essence, right? Very similar. Now these signals are then sent to a, the control fins of the bomb. If it pecked dead center, obviously the fin makes no correction. But if that bomb went off course, right? So if it started shifting left, the bomb started wanting off left of the ship, obviously that image, if you were looking at it, would start going to the right of your vision, right? Just like the birds would. So that bird would start pecking towards the right of that, that disc, which would then tell that fin, hey, we're, we're, uh, we're moving too far left. Hey, let's, let's move back towards that center. Fucking ingenious. So the pecking bird would follow that shit, bro. Each peck telling the fin which way to move, right? And um, this bird was basically pecking its way to its own death, right? But hey, it was being rewarded with food, so it's all good, PETA. Um, now, just real quick, I don't know, because I draw this comparison. I think it's, it's I just want to throw it out there. You know, some, you know, some might say the government, you know, is Skinner in essence, using the same oper operant conditioning on us, the pigeons, right? Think about that. But anyway, he, he builds a fight simulator because he wants to test his pigeons flying skills, right? He, he's gotten them pecking on this. He got them pecking on this, uh, this little circular board. The fins are moving. So he builds a little simulator and, uh, there's footage of these birds in these simulators and these birds perform perfectly. This was actually sound, pretty sound science. Uh, he had strong control over his birds and he could control the environment that they were in. That was very important, right? He could control the bomb um, and he could control the pigeon's behavior. So he can control the two most important parts of it. Um, so Skinner, in his mind, and in a lot of people's mind, with a reasonable degree of certainty, you could expect, you know, this project to succeed. So next step is we got to build prototypes. So prototypes are built and legions of pigeons are prepared. They start training these pigeons. And about a month before mass production was set to start, so they were ready to start this project, like actually build it. Um, and despite all the success in the trials, in 1944, the military just shuts the program down. Now the main theory being that it was actually very difficult for people higher up to place their political trust in a pigeon. All right, think about it. It's like, yeah, we sent these pigeons and it didn't really work. We spent all this money on pigeons. So <laughs> I get it, I guess, in a way. So while we are actually fucking around with bats and pigeons, the Nazis are already way ahead of us. And they draw first blood in the advanced guided weapons department. So in September 9th, 1943, a group of German Dornier bombers take off and they're headed for the Italian naval fleet. Their only mission is to take this fleet out. So just for some um, history purposes, the Italians had just surrendered to the Allies at this point. And under the terms of the surrender, um, they had to send their ships to Allied-controlled Malta so, if you ever look at a map of Europe, uh, it looks like a woman kicking a football under her face. 
right? Italy being the leg and the foot. So Malta would be just below the heel of the foot, south of Sicily. It's a small island, right? So this Italian naval ship, they set uh, sail from La Spezia. Now, using that same reference, we just used the woman kicking the football under her face. Um, La Spezia would be inside the hip crotch area of the football kicking lady in the Mediterranean Sea, right? So the ships sail out and they make it just south of Corsica, which would be the top of the football. It's the small little islands that's to the east of Italy, um, if you're looking at a map. But the Germans, they have no plans of letting these ships get any further and become allied um, assets and not theirs, right? So from 18,000 feet up, these Dorniers, they set their sights on the Italian flagship, lamely, lam- I'm going to repeat that, lamely named Roma. Roma. Wow. So original. And these German bombers, they dropped these bombs, guys. And two of these bombs smashed through the heavily armored decks of the Roma. And once inside, they're designed to blow up. And that's exactly what they do. They explode inside. And one happens to hit the ammunition magazines. And boom. Right? Roma literally splits in half and sinks almost instantly. And it takes nearly 1,300 crewmen with her. Now, her sister ship, the also lamely named Italia, is next. And she gets hit. Boom. But badly damaged, she actually manages to stay afloat, but out of actions. Now, the Allies, at this point, were perplexed, right? We couldn't understand how only a few bombers were able to be so devastating. We just talked about how hard it was to hit ships. They don't even realize what they had just been introduced to was the first guided bomb. And it was called the Fitz, uh, I'm sorry, the Fritz X. And it's a hard pill to swallow for some people, but the facts are that the world's first smart bombs were German. They were German smart bombs. And these bombs were extremely ingenious for the time period. The fact is, they were way ahead of us on this front at this point. So the Fritz X was a huge leap forward in the smart bomb technology. doesn't use pigeons or animals to guide it like we're fucking around with. It's radio controlled. It's a fucking little RC plane in reality with a bomb on it. A 3,000 pound bomb to be exact. A big bomb. So it was fitted with a tail section with movable fins and it was designed to be dropped from about three miles away from its target pretty decent pretty decent distance and at approximately 20,000 feet so way the fuck up there now from 20,000 feet dropping a bomb three that weighs 3,000 pounds gathers a shitload of momentum as it falls and it free falls at about 700 miles per hour 
Now, they threw a little flare on the back of it to help aid it, so the bombers in the plane could track its movement and direct the Fritz uh, to its destination. So they used uh, like a joystick attached to a radio transmitter, it's very basic, to send minor adjustments to this tail fin to keep it on track. It's basically, when you see the footage of it, it's the first Atari controller. And they would guide it, you know, in all the way to the ship. In test drops, a proficient Atari player could consistently guide this Fritz X within 15 feet of its target. And 15 feet of a target on a big ship is not bad. It's pretty accurate. Now, the Germans weren't done, right? They weren't done with just hitting the Roma and Natalia. So two days after sinking that Roma, it's the U.S.'s turn now. So the USS Savannah is supporting the Allied landings in uh, Salerno. Now, Salerno is the ankle of the lady, using that same reference from before. When she is hit by this new German smart bomb, and it kills nearly 200 of our sailors. But they also managed to keep her afloat, similar to the Italia, but the ship is now rendered basically useless for the remainder of the war, so it did its job. And we couldn't figure it out. But luckily, someone noticed something. You could see these things coming at you, right? And observers on the ground uh, on, uh, of Salerno who were being, you know, that's what the ship was doing, supporting, right, supporting these 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 troops landing landing at this place. They could see this flare behind it, that flare that they attached. So they knew this wasn't a normal bomb. So you got to remember, there wasn't really any jet propulsion back then in theory. And so there was nothing pushing bombs but momentum and physics in 1943. So seeing like a little flame behind it, it's different. It's new. Um, so they, they figured they, they had to be being controlled somehow. So they can concluded it was the plane who is controlling this bomb, the plane that just dropped it. So what was happening was these bombers had to slow up and hover around to keep a visual on this plane. They couldn't even be at full. They couldn't even be at full throttle. You know, they and so they'd be slow and low to con- to control it to completion. So while our ships couldn't stop a 700 mile per hour projectile flying at them. We could shoot down a slow-moving plane in the area. So once we figured out what was going on, we just started simply shooting down these lingering planes, which basically rendered the Fritz X ineffective, right? But the Germans ain't done. This isn't... They only trick up their sleeve. So the Germans now need, obviously, a faster, more powerful weapon that can target ships quickly, and from further away. Unfortunately for us, they already have it. And that's the Henschel HS-293 glide bomb. And it's actually the world's first operational guided missile. So this bomb was technically smaller compared to the Fritz X, but this had an actual rocket motor and a pair of wings. And it used the same radio control system as that Fritz. The difference being they would drop it and it would take off, right? 
like a missile you would see today leaving a plane. It doesn't just drop and then continues just that momentum from the plane. It actually goes faster. It whoo, you know, takes off from rocket propulsion in, in, in essence. Um, so this rocket would blast for 10 seconds, a little thruster, which would push it way out in front of these bombers, planes, right? Heading straight towards the target. Now, this bomb being smaller had its advantage because it made it highly maneuverable. So it gave it, uh, it gave it a range of about 10 miles also. So now the airplane could stay further back away from the fleet of ships. It was truly the first standoff weapon where you could fire a weapon from a distance, stay way far behind it, and it would hit its target. That just wasn't a reality back then. That wasn't happening. You had to be up close, like we talked about earlier, up close and personal. Um, so while um, these were the first standoff weapon, they were used slightly different. The Fritz was, like I said, a big bomb and targeted heavy warships. The smaller Henschel was designed for less armored ships like transport ships and these landing crafts that were putting soldiers onto the beaches. Um, and the reality of it was, a, it was scary at the time because you could literally see these coming. And you could see it track you. It's like the predator-prey scenario on the open seas. And they had no defense for a short period of time. Because the Allies have our own engineers at the time now searching for a solution to this. Like, how, how are we going to stop this? You know, what's, what's our, what's our, what's our gonna defense uh, system going to be to these, right? Um, and as soon as they, once again, realize these bombs are also radio-controlled, they get to work inventing ways to just simply jam radio signals. You block the signal, the, the, the bomb can't fly, right? So they basically just blanketed the air with a jammer that knocked out all the radio frequencies in the area. So by the time of the Normandy landings in 1944, a combination of effective ship-mounted jammers and we had uh, air superiority at the time, right? So we could, we were following our ships now a lot more um, closely with, uh, you know, with our with our own uh, dogfighters. Um, it basically that basically ended the reign of these German radio guided bombs. But this weapon race isn't over. So 1943 Burma, which is um, Myanmar now, um, and this is uh, Southeast Asia. So picture um, uh, uh, Thailand, India, and China, that area, and it's right there. So those all border um, Burma. Um, Allied forces halt in advance of the Japanese army on the frontier with India, right? But sustaining this fight in the dense jungles of Burma is tough as fuck. Burma is it's just a it's just a very difficult landscape, right? To move anybody or anything into it. Um, so keeping troops supplied is a big problem and challenge for both sides. Um, we concentrated uh, ally, our, the Allied forces. We concentrated on dropping supplies via airdrops. So we just flew a plane over, you know, dropped a crate. The Japanese rely 
on the Burma Railway. Now, this railway um, stretches more than 250 miles from uh, Bangkok, I come in you, you come on floor, to, uh, to Rangoon in Burma. Now, these tracks, they cross thick jungles and multiple rivers. So, what's the best way to end a war in any location? You, you cut off the ability of your enemy to supply itself. It's simple. So these railways were very thin ribbons that went through the jungle, and they were specifically vulnerable um, at the bridges because these bridges took much longer to repair and rebuild than just a simple roadbed, right? Um, but this is 1943, and like we've been talking about, hitting an 8-foot-wide target with a bomb from 10,000 feet uh, in the air at the time was largely just a matter of luck. And we're America, and we play with more than luck, brah. And the U.S. Army Air Force, you know, when, I guess, when it when it isn't playing with bats and burning down its own base, uh, was working on another secret project, one designed to basically lay that dick bomb on the throat of these bridges. Uh, and it was America's first true smart bomb, and it was called the Azon, which is basically a thousand-pound conventional bomb with, you know, a radio-controlled tail bolted onto it. Some may call it a copycat. I would, um, but ours was it was a little different. Um, it had four movable tail fins. Two were controlled automatically, so it had its own control system a little bit. Um, but it was it was very basic, so it was controlled automatically just by a simple uh, a, a gyroscope, right? Now this kept it steady as it falls level, basically, and kept it from rolling like a bullet, which then kept the more important rudder vertical for more accurate steering and controlling. Now, while the um, uh, Azon is not as sophisticated as the German bomber uh, bomb was, the, the Fritz. Um, its design was perfect for hitting small, narrow areas. So by 1944, uh, um, it was ready to be deployed to Burma, right? So the Azon worked perfectly where hundreds of these other bombs had failed previously because we were trying to do this already. It just wasn't working. So it was a, it was a, an extreme success, and it was actually very key um, for us severing the Japanese supply line. And um, by the final Allied counterattacks of late 1944, the effect on the uh, enemy was obvious. The reality is the Japanese soldiers were starving, and they were desperately short of equipment, fuel, they had no ammunition. They literally had nothing else to fight with. They were broke. They crumbled. Um, and bombs like the Azon and the German Fritz X, um, they are giant leaps forward in technology. But as effective as they were, there was something bigger and there was something bigger uh, going on. And they were not up to dealing with a new threat to the Allied war effort. Because Germany wasn't done yet. And in 1944, Britain, our number one ally, they're being bombarded by a horrifying 
um, new bomb, and it's called the German V1 flying bomb, also referred to as the buzz bomb or doodlebug. Now, these are different. These are a whole different animal because these are fired from land. It's one of the first ever cruise missiles, right? So these bombs are frequently smashing into London. They call them terror. They're, they're being terrorized is what, what, what everyone was saying at the time. And also, German subs were still posing a threat from their naval bases in northern France. So our allies, they need help targeting these launch sites. They're firing them, man. Firing them. Boom, London being hit. Boom, London being hit, right? But there's a problem. These sites, they're heavily fortified with concrete, man. You can't, I mean, you got bust, you got, they're small. They're not big areas. And also, they're very well hidden. So the Azon, it just doesn't have that kind of firepower. We need a bigger boom, right? We need something that goes boom, boom, a little harder in the night. So, and it, and it still has to be smart. It has to be able to be able to hit a, you know, a very specific area. So what's our top secret plan? Well, it's going to be to take an unmanned aircraft, pack it with explosives, two times its uh, normal flying weight in reality, and then crash them using radio control into these fortified targets. The operation is codenamed Aphrodite. So, which is named after Aphrodite, who was um, or is an ancient Greek goddess uh, uh, associated with love, beauty, pleasure, passion, and procreation, right? Because we were going to get our fuck on, right? Um, these were just basically old planes turned into unmanned bombs, the first real drones like we see today. So it's going to use um, adapted Azon radio controlled technology, but they're going to outfit it into the cockpit of the plane to basically use the real steering controls inside these retired planes. Because basically they're just old retired planes. And then um, control it from a tailing plane like before. Now this whole thing was going to be linked together with this revolutionary new technology, the boob tube, the television. They put two TV cameras in the cockpit. TV was just coming out. TV wasn't that old, guys. Um, but they put two TV cameras in the cockpit, one looking down at the dashboard and the controls, and the other basically just looked out the window towards the nose of the plane. So like almost like a person just would just be sitting there. I mean, and then the uh, these images were transmitted back to the trailing plane. That's virtual reality drones video game shit in 1944, guys. Prove me wrong. Fight me. But uh, uh, early tests reveal a problem with this technology. Um, while the technology is revolutionary, it's not advanced enough yet to get the unmanned aircraft into the air while heavily loaded with all these high explosives. They need experienced pilots. So they need, in the rare case, they need volunteers. They're not going to force people to do this. This is a volunteer, This is a voluntary um, operation to fly these planes. This is incredibly dangerous. Two men need to basically take the aircraft up, arm the explosives, 
pass control to the tailing plane, and then eject themselves while still over London. This is a dedication to your country, guys. And one volunteer for the Navy's version of this program, and they called their operation Anvil, was experienced bomber pilot Lieutenant Joseph Kennedy Jr., older brother of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. You may know him as JFK. And actually, it's Joseph who the Kennedy family is grooming for the future presidency at this time. He had a very successful naval naval career. He was actually, at this point when he volunteered, he was due to be rotated home because he had already completed the maximum allowed number of missions. But instead of going home, he volunteered for this service. And on August the 12th, 1944, Kennedy and his co-pilot, Lieutenant Wilford J. Willie, they take off in a drone loaded with more than 20,000 pounds of explosives. They get up to the 2,000-foot uh, operating height. They transfer control to the trailing plane. But before they can bail out, boom. The plane blows up, scattering wreckage for two miles. Neither body was ever found. Now these missions continue onward anyway for another five months where several more pilots are killed. Eventually the program is finally then scrapped. The operation doesn't hit a single target. Not one. Now at this point the war in reality is drawing closer to an end, but America still had some revenge to settle with Japan. And while all this smart bomb shit was going on, we had them bat bombs waiting to be deployed. Remember, they have been approved for use, and the plan was still to drop them in September of 1944. So the bat team was waiting for final confirmation to start prepping these one million bats and bat bombs. But months go by, and the team doesn't hear anything. So at this point, the time was approaching where, you know, they needed to start this up, this preparation, if it was going to happen by September of 1944. When out of the blue, and with no warning or explanation, the project is canceled. Now, nobody can understand why, right? The team didn't know it, though, at the time, but research into another top-secret weapon is nearing its conclusion. One that's going to end the war in Japan entirely. And one that also, in my opinion, changed the planet and societies forever. And that project is known as the Manhattan Project, the atom bomb, the first nuclear weapon. And we dropped two of them, which ended the war in Asia and concluded World War II. Think about it. Couldn't even figure out how to guide a bomb properly, but we figured out how to split an atom and, enri and enrich uranium. From where? Like where? That's two, that's two totally different giant leaps. So I'll leave you with this question because it's one that's fair to ask. 
What would the world be like today if Truman decides to use bats instead of the atomic bomb? What happens if we drop bats and we burn Japan down instead of dropping a nuclear bomb and radioactively burning them down? Like It changes society. Maybe we don't have an arms race. Who knows what happens? I think the devastation's still there, but it could it could have changed the entire could have changed the whole di- the entire dynamic of I mean the 70s and 80s in reality. But uh that's going to basically conclude this episode. Um I'll let you think on that. Uh make sure you go to the Chromatic Distortion Instagram page guys and like and follow. You can slide into those DMs with questions, thoughts, critiques, topics. Uh, you would like to hear. Don't matter. Get in them. Um, also, please make sure you subscribe and rate this podcast on whatever platform you are using. I really do appreciate the support. And with that being said, like always, be good to one another. And I'll catch you on the flip side. You have just witnessed the lyrical stylistics of chromatic distortion.
Olympics on the shore, China's under martial law. 